Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til langsomme samtaler om verdenssituationen. For fire år siden der udgav den tyske politiske filosof Jan Werner Müller en bog, der hed Hvad er populisme? Bogen blev et kæmpe hit i hele den vestlige verden, fordi Müller som en af de første beskrev, hvordan populister ikke bare vil protestere mod magten, og heller ikke bare vil vinde valg, men de rent faktisk vil udøve magten. Han beskrev populisme som det, han kaldte for en regeringskunst, an art of governing. Det sjove er, at det, han skrev for fire år siden, det har faktisk vist sig at passe utrolig godt til den måde, som Donald Trump han har regeret USA på. Jan Werner Müller skrev også en anden bog for et stykke tid siden. Den handlede om Ungarn. Hvordan Ungarn var gået for at være et liberalt demokrati, hvor deres leder, Viktor Orbán, gik i korbærbukser, elskede Amerika og hyldede de liberale drømme om markedsøkonomier og overhovedet ikke gik op i konservative værdier. Og hvordan den selvsamme Orbán nu har stået i spidsen for opgøret med hele det liberale. Hvordan den selvsamme Orbán har vendt sig fra de gamle drømme om det liberale europæiske fællesskab og hvordan den selvsamme Orbán nu fører an i total opgør med det europæiske fællesskabs fundament. Well, good evening to our viewers in Denmark and especially good evening to you Jan Werner Müller in Berlin, isn't that right? It is in Berlin. Yes, thank you very much. Good evening to everybody. Fordi Müller skrev den første rigtig vigtige bog om populisme som regeringskunst og den første rigtig vigtige advarsel mod Orbán som et illiberalt fænomen midt i det ellers liberale Europa, tænkte jeg, det ville være helt og aldeles oplagt med en samtale med Jan Werner Müller, hvor vi tager fat på alt det, der er sket med Trump i de sidste fire år, det, der er sket i Europa de sidste år, og alt det, der er sket omkring populismen i den sidste epoke. So I thought it would be just a privilege to talk to you now where the Trump presidency is close to its end. And one of the very important insights, I think, of your book on populism, that was eye-opening to, to me at least and to many others, was that populism was not just a way of protesting or showing anger or a way of winning elections. You were one of the first to say, well, this is actually also a way of governing. These people, they want to use their power. Populism is an art of governance. And when I read your book today, it, the analysis is very convincing still. I mean, you were absolutely right. And Trump kind of confirmed your, what was then a hypothesis. So I want to ask you, what surprised you the most about the Donald Trump presidency? So as you say, he also tried to exercise what I've been trying to call the populist art of governance, which for shorthand involves an attempt to capture the state, to replace what nominally at least should be a kind of neutral civil service with partisan actors. It involves um, what political scientists sometimes call mass clientelism. So you basically only give benefits or bureaucratic favors to those citizens who support you politically, or you can also try to create a kind of crony capitalism. And last but not least, Um, you massively try to delegitimize uh, civil society protest, even if it's actually no real threat to your to your power. Um, and I think especially, but not only the latter, has something to do with what I see as the kind of core claim of populists, which is not about anti-elitism. Any of us can criticize the powerful, doesn't mean that we're right, but this is not in and of itself dangerous for democracy in the way that critics of populism sometimes claim. The core sort of idea as I see it is that populist leaders are going to say we and only we represent what they often call the real people or also the silent majority. And if that's the claim, then by definition, it cannot be true that let's say thousands or in the case of the protests against Trump's so-called Muslim travel ban, millions of people are out there protesting against you. So you have to delegitimize them and you do it according to a playbook where the first move is always to say, these aren't real citizens out there. Everything has been manipulated, has been arranged for, has been paid for by, well, and then you can trot out the usual suspects, uh, George Soros or the CIA, or in the case of Erdogan, if you think back to the Gezi Park protests in 2013, we were told very swiftly by the Turkish government 
that of course these weren't real Turkish citizens. It was, you know, obviously for anybody who really thinks about these things, it was of course the German airline Lufthansa, which had arranged all this because Erdogan, remember, has built this fantastic new airport outside Istanbul and Turkish Airlines uh, is now the best airline in the world. And that's why the Germans uh, and Frankfurt got worried. So that really explained everything. So all of these, all of these aspects, I think, have been very visible during the, during the Trump presidency. Um, I think it's not unfair to say that Trump hasn't proven to be as competent uh, a, a populist leader or somebody exercising that art of populist governance as some of the other contenders in this, in this field. So think of Erdogan, think of Modi in India, think of Orban and Kaczynski in Europe. So if you find this a plausible picture, then you're likely to say, okay, so we have a sort of shared pattern. This is a kind of family resemblance. If you put all these figures who I just mentioned next to each other, there are obviously differences. But I think you, you might say, well, it's sort of one political family. I, I can see they're all different, but at the same time, they kind of do belong to the same political family. And I completely agree with that. But the fact that they're similar and that they govern in similar ways does not, does not prove that the causes for their rise are always identical. And so this is the pedantic bit that national contexts and national constellations still matter a great deal. And I only emphasize this very pedantic point because just as in 2016, we had many observers say, ah, now that Trump has won, now that Brexit has happened, you know, it's gonna be, remember, Norbert Hofer is gonna win for the Freedom Party in Austria. <laughs> then we're gonna have Prime Minister Wilders in the Netherlands. Then we're gonna have President Le Pen in France. This whole domino theory, which of course was very often pushed by right-wing populists themselves because it was in their interest to basically suggest that you know the trend is with us, you know we are kind of we are kind of riding this uh, this kind of zeitgeist of populism. And now we see the opposite. Now we see observers say, ah, now that Trump has lost, surely that's bad news for all these right-wing populists who are in government elsewhere. And I think that just as much as there wasn't a kind of automatic development in 2016, 2017, there is now no automatic development in the other direction. And moreover, um, contrary to what was sometimes said about the emergence of a kind of populist uh, international, we haven't really seen anybody sort of come out and show any real solidarity. So, you know, figures like Modi and Netanyahu, who were obviously best buddies with Trump, they haven't come out and said, look, we're not even gonna meet Biden because Biden, you know, obviously hasn't really been elected. There was fraud, you know, we don't believe that he's the legitimate president of the United States or anything, anything of that sort. So while on the one hand, there's nothing inherently illogical about such a kind of populist international. I mean, it's even though people often said, oh, you can't have, have an international of nationalists, that's illogical. I don't think that's true. In a sense, we had a kind of international of liberal nationalists in the 19th century when figures like, you know, Mazzini in Italy or John Stuart Mill in the UK, they said, look, we all believe in the same thing. We all believe in national self-determination. We're all anti-imperialists and we're helping each other across borders. There's nothing illogical or incoherent about that as an idea, the, the problem might arise if, you know, one fine day, everybody sits in Brussels and the first guy says, you know, Germany first and the second person says Denmark first. Yeah, then you kind of eventually are gonna have a problem. But at the level of philosophy, it's not, it's not so obviously incoherent, but at the same time, it didn't mean as much as, you know, the likes of Stephen Bannon and sometimes journalists sort of made it out to be. In other words, many, many of these figures are ruthlessly pragmatic when it really matters. And they don't really believe in a sort of shared ideology. They don't really believe in sort of right-wing populism as any political philosophy prompting them now to stick with Trump when clearly it's no longer very plausible and probably at a certain point also no longer really in their, in their interest. Well, I think that's a very interesting point because on the one hand, you see these similarities with the conspiracies theories and the delegitimization of opposition and, and the idea of the real authentic people. On the other hand, you have people like Donald Trump who do not seem capable of following an ideological playbook, who seem to act on instinct or more what he feels like in the moment. He doesn't seem to me to be a very ideological politician. He seems to 
to play the the narrative that's good for him that that will help him in in the moment when i read your book originally i thought well this could never happen in a very developed country this could happen in what we would call failed democracies or but you know this whole theory of there is only one people and the, and this being against pluralism i thought that american civil society would be too strong for that i thought that plurality of opinion and media in america would be too strong for that. i was surprised that he actually managed to take over the republican party and dominate and define the american right for a period of four years and commanding a loyalty that no other politician on the right in my lifetime has commanded in America. What do you think of that? Let me say two things. Um, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the story that, let's say, the, the partyship of the Republicans was sort of cruising along on the ocean of political moderation and responsibility. Yeah. You know, with Captain uh, Mitt Romney or Captain Paul Ryan, you know, responsible, uh, far-sighted uh, politicians, and then this pirate appears out of nowhere and hijacks that ship, and you know, takes it to the Bermuda Triangle of extremism and uh, demagoguery and and so on. Um, obviously, it's a very like all American parties, um, it's very heterogeneous phenomena. But I would say the Republicans, in many ways, were ready for Trump. Um, not because there's something inherently uh, about that party, but I think it was a it was a longer term development, such that Trump, in many ways, was the symptom of something and not the cause. And I would say it goes back at least to the 1990s. It goes back to then Speaker Newt Gingrich, basically starting to say that the other side, i.e. the Democrats, were just fundamentally illegitimate. I mean, remember, he actually issued this list of words, which Republicans, in his view, always had to use when they talked about Democrats. You know, greed and lying and traitors and you know, a long list of pretty, pretty unsavory uh, terms. So this kind of delegitimization of the other side started earlier. And I think it led to outcomes such as citizens in 2016 coming out of the voting booth and being asked, you know, do you think Trump is qualified to be president? And they said, no. And they were asked next, who do you just vote for? And they would say Trump. And that obviously only makes sense if the other side is just so unimaginably evil and, and could never be voted for that you basically have to stick with your own side, even if you think the guy isn't actually quite the right, isn't quite the right choice. Secondly, what some of my colleagues in US political science uh, call rather bluntly plutocratic populism has arguably been a Republican strategy for quite some time. What they mean by that is the combination of economic policies, which are actually very unpopular. So sometimes, you know, you have these situations that pollsters explain to citizens, even citizens who vote Republican, that, you know, things like, okay, 80%, more than 80%, of the Trump tax cut in 2017 went to the upper 1%. Or they explained to citizens, you know, this is what's actually gonna to happen to healthcare if, you know, the party gets its way. And they would sometimes, you know, sort of act in disbelief and they would say, look, this can't be true. I mean, if this were true, nobody would ever vote for these guys. But that is what the policies are actually like. And precisely because they are such a minoritarian position, you have to have the populist part, in other words, relentless culture, culture war, where you know it's always about what's the real America, well, white Christian, and here are these threatening others who are associated with the Democrats and so on. I'm not saying the entire Republican party is reducible to that, it's obviously more complicated, but it's been present as a strategy for a long time. And that's something that Trump could really tap into. And that's why I think he was not, he was extreme. But he was not really the exception. He didn't come out of nowhere. He didn't start saying, doing things which nobody had ever really wanted to do or said or said before. And hence, it's also very unlikely to say that, oh, this is all going to now end. And, and you're going to you know, revert to the kind of Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney instantiation. Having said that, if I may add one more, one more thought, um, what has become sort of conventional wisdom among certain parts of the commentariat Namely that, 
you know, we are still sort of in, in a moment of incredible danger because what if a more competent Trump comes along? So you kind of take out Trump, the yes. incompetent, easily distracted uh, person, and you put in, you know, take your pick. I mean, names which are often mentioned are Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley. Um, so very technocratic figures, kind of young fogies, very cold in their demeanor, but, you know, very clever, very cynical, maybe in certain ways. If you just insert these people, and then you're going to get a similar outcome, except this time, they might really destroy democracy. I, I think this is a little bit naive in a certain way, because whatever we think about Trump, um, of course, it mattered that he was a long-established figure in American popular culture. I think for us looking from Europe sometimes, this has been difficult to appreciate that this is, you know, the person who's probably been the most public American who's ever lived in terms of his, his omnipresence uh, from at least the early 1980s um, in all kinds of different venues of American popular culture. And that did matter as well. And it allowed people to project all kinds of things onto him and to simply say, oh, we're now gonna have a very technocratic Republican instead, you're also not gonna get the benefit of that publicity, of that ability to evoke you know, variations of the American dream, to appeal to sort of certain aspects of uh, basically an ongoing American culture war where many people on the right for the first time felt, yeah, great. It's no longer just Hollywood. It's no longer all these evil, liberals it's now our tv shows it's now our guys who are sort of gonna gonna play a role so in that sense you know i'm, I'm not diminishing I'm, I'm not downplaying the ongoing dangers to american democracy but this kind of very mechanistic take out trump and insert competent authoritarian i think that's also not very plausible back when he he was elected there were a lot of people saying well now we must cheer for the institutions now the institutions are going to save us. And it was very interesting to see the global left cheering for the deep state of American intelligence and cheering for the old establishment and, and the institutions. But that was nevertheless the point of, uh, of view for a lot of people. And now four years later, how do you think the institutions of, of American democracy with, withstood the pressure of Donald Trump? I think there was initially also a certain complacency. There were plenty of people who said, look, we're not Turkey, we're not Hungary. You know, we are one of the oldest democracies in the world and we can rely on checks and balances. The institutions are going to fix it somehow. And I think in many ways, the institutions have not held up as well as some of these observers had expected. Clearly, you know, there were plenty of, let's say professionals, um, judges, election officials, plenty of people who did their job and who sometimes, I think we shouldn't forget, um, you know, think about the whistleblowers, for instance, who really made very significant personal sacrifices in the name, in the name of democracy. So I think there is, I mean, there is a positive story to be, to be told there, but I think there's not quite this kind of uncritical story that, oh, you know, it, it's sort of going to work out by itself because, you know, the institutions can be, can be relied on. Um, secondly, I think it's important to maybe be more careful with the story about democratic norms. I mean, this is something that in many ways has been a plausible framing of what happened and what should happen in the future, namely that relevant actors uphold informal norms that ultimately make democracy work. Because the formal, the formal part obviously matters, but the informal part matters, matters too. The complication with this, in my view, is that not all norms are equal. So you can have, for instance, norms of civility, which you know sound pretty nice. You know, the old Senate, you know, where a hundred men got together and they met over drinks at the bar and they worked out the deals, and that was much nicer than this kind of you know very uncivil, very confrontational situation we have today. But of course, that kind of bonhomie, if you like, relied on the fact that certain questions were never asked. Certain issues were never brought up. Nobody talked about what was actually going on in southern states, which in those days was still controlled by Democratic senators. So I think we have to be more careful about this story about, about norms and norm breaking. Um, as some of my colleagues have, off, usually on the left, have also, I think, rightly pointed out, you can also understand democracy 
as continuous norm breaking, as continuous questioning of inherited hierarchies and of doing things differently and of shocking people by being uncivil and loud and annoying and, and so on. So I think we always have to look very carefully at the actual content of norm and ask the question to what extent the content really relates to underlying democratic principles such as equality and freedom, or whether these are simply kind of inherited traditions or practices, you know, that make everybody sort of go along for a while that actually ultimately might not have that much to do with these underlying principles. So in that sense, I think there's still a hell of a lot to be learned from the experience of the last couple of years. And I think it will be fatefully wrong to now say, oh, this was some you know, bizarre aberration and, and a kind of accident that happened. And now it's sort of back to you know, civilized discourse and uh, you know, the good old ways that we had before. I think that would be the wrong lesson to, to take away. When, when we've been looking at America from Europe and not being a part of the Trump world and obviously not being as affected by Trump and being at a distance, being allowed to have a more analytical approach to, to Donald Trump, where it seems to me that a lot of Americans, for them, it was really an existential battle to have Donald Trump as a president. It seems to me that everyone has been radicalized in America, that looking at the, the talk shows, looking at the media that we used to consider neutral and objective. CNN were like, they were just covering the world for us back in the 90s. And now we see them obviously as engaging in a culture war and New York Times. And it seems to us here from Europe that they have become radicalized and they have been polarized by Trump. And also that they've made business models out of being against Trump. You know, they, they, it's been a business saying facts first for the CNN slogan. And, and you know what that means? He's not facts and we are facts. Or Washington Post, truth dies in darkness. They yeah. are truth. And he's, he's the, the lie. How, how do you see the, the intellectual institutions and the media's response to Trump? I'm, I'm glad that we have five hours left to <laughs> gently approach this very simple question. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, say, I'll say three things and I'll try to, to be as succinct as possible. Um, the first one is that the, I think it's important to, to say that Yes, there's polarization in the United States, but it's very clearly asymmetric. So not both sides have radicalized over the last decades and also over the last four years. As again, a number of um, our colleagues in the US, I think have really shown empirically, what's peculiar about the situation there is the emergence of an almost entirely self-enclosed right-wing American ecosphere where really politics is primarily about self-validation and has no sort of cognitive cognitive aspect. It's not really about, about news. And we all know the contenders who kind of are in that, in that world. Now, to be sure, you can also find conspiracy theories on the left, you know, as you, as you gently hinted, Rachel Maddow, MSNBC, they also in a sense try to profit from the last four years in a certain kind of way. But there's a crucial difference. Those who are in that self-enclosed right-wing media ecosphere have virtually no contact with center-right publications, let's say the Wall Street Journal, which you know also has a very pro-Trumpist uh, opinion page, but the news in the Wall Street Journal really are news and very reliable because you know, if you wanna make money in, in Wall Street, you better don't fall for fake news. It better be accurate, right? On the left, People also hear conspiracy theories and, and they're radicalized, but sooner or later, they are gonna be exposed to, for lack of a better term, mainstream and fairly reliable uh, outlets such as New York Times, CNN, etc. So if something is really outrageously wrong, they're gonna change their mind for the most part. So that's why it's not symmetrical. That's point number one. Point number two is that I completely agree that in, in, a, in, a, in a perverse way, there was a tendency for parts of the media and Trump to become codependent. So he was kind of telling the story that the media is the opposition. Stephen Bannon also said this very early on as the enemy of the people. Obviously, it was, a, it was a clever move in terms of trying to discredit the media in advance. And Trump, you know, in his in his sort of, you know, he can't, he can't, he can't resist saying the quiet part out loud. 
in this interview with Leslie Stahl a couple of couple of weeks ago, basically said it out loud. And he said, yeah, I do this because then when you report negative things about me, I will have discredited you in advance. And the media, in a sense, also a part of the media, also then said, oh, great, you know, we now become the defenders of democracy and our subscription rates are going up like crazy. So this is a good thing. But of course, it's also a trap because the media is not the opposition. The opposition sits in Congress or can be civil society on the streets or something like that. But it's not the primary uh, job of the media to be the official, official opposition. So that was highly problematic. The third and maybe less obvious point where I think there might be some interesting lessons for Europe as well, is that, again, this has a prehistory. And the prehistory is also that from the 1950s onwards, conservatives in the United States have systematically said the main so-called mainstream media, and in those days, the three big broadcast networks have a systematic liberal bias, and it's against us. So this, did, again, didn't start with Trump. They've been saying this for a long time. And my sense is that eventually, at least a number of journalists started to internalize this critique and they felt the pressure and they felt they had to prove that they weren't lefty liberal. And for a long time, you know, the, the most obvious way of proving this, of proving your objectivity was, well, of course, we're neutral. And how do we prove that we're neutral? We prove that by giving both sides sort of equal space and saying, oh, there's this and there's that. And as long as you had a fairly well-functioning two-party system, that was a fairly plausible thing to do. But in the context of asymmetric polarization, in the context of, you know, during the Trump years, basically the government operating with alternative facts and so on, this strategy was no longer viable. I mean, as Norman Alstein, for instance, has put it, you know, if you depict an asymmetric reality in a symmetrical way, it's actually a form of distortion. It looks like you're doing journalism in the good old way, but it actually becomes highly problematic. So when, for instance, the AP report in September, you know, oh, the two parties now live in their own realities, or they're presenting two different versions of reality. This was the kind of old both sides presentation of American politics, when in fact, you know, it would have been highly appropriate to say, look, of course they're legitimate partisan differences, but when it comes to the pandemic, for instance, it's not really true that these are just two versions of reality. One party is a hell of a lot closer to what's actually going on and the other one isn't. And there's nothing wrong with sort of pointing that out. It doesn't mean that you become, you know, a cheerleader for the Democrats or, you know, uh, present yourself now as, as, as sort of all out, all out subjective. And my sense is that this has been a tactic that some far right populists in Europe have also started to practice quite successfully. And I think they've sometimes done it by mobilizing counter publics, for instance, on Facebook, where they basically tell journalists, look, you know, we're catching you out. You, you're totally biased, you're not fair. And I think if you do this long enough and with enough toughness and, and, and often very, in a very personal threatening way, I worry that, that journalists can say, okay, you know, we have to be more careful. We have to give these guys more leeway. And, Obviously, as, as you know, my, my position is not we should never talk to far-right populists or anything of that sort, but we should also not give in to this kind of pressure uh, where they start saying it's always going to be about us and, you know, we have to have at least 50% of the airtime when, you know, in some countries, if they only get 30% of the vote, such as in Germany, it's not obvious why they should get 50% of the airtime. Anyway, end of, end of mini rant, forgive me. No, it's wonderful. I think it is. It's a very, very broad question. It's a very difficult question. We'll take five hours about later. Mm -hmm. I have one last question about the US before I want to ask you some questions about Europe. And looking at the election of Joe Biden, I think there are two interpretations of it. One is that, well, this is the old liberal elite reclaiming power, that Trump was just a, an aberration, and now we're back to normal, restoring the soul of the nation, the good buddy of Barack Obama, not as cool. But, but, but he's still on the right team, reclaiming power. That's his promise, Obama's old team. And, and now we're just back to normal. And from a leftist standpoint, that's, that's not acceptable, of course. And then there's the other version saying, well, well, actually, he was picked by a specific moment. And he's not, he's not Obama in 2008. He's very influenced by what has been exposed during the COVID-19 crisis. 
He's very influenced by the climate crisis. And he knows that he must, to a certain extent, cater to the left of the Democratic Party, where the energy and the inspiration is that he will be a compromise between Bernie Sanders and the old Obama regime. And that might lead to some progressive changes and the most ambitious climate agenda that we've ever seen. So, you know, the one point we say, well, this is back to the old normal. The other point we say, well, actually, this could be a transition to something very interesting, new and progressive. What, what is your take on that? Well, I don't make predictions, especially not about the future, but I'll, I'll say one thing that's fairly banal and then maybe something else that's not quite so banal. The banal thing is simply that it really depends on whether people can remain, can remain mobilized. Um, on one level, what has happened this year in the United States is quite extraordinary. There's some estimates according to which since the death of George Floyd, there have been 8,500 demonstrations across the country. That's an extraordinary level of, of mass mobilization. And as, as you hint, I mean, all kinds of different issues have been tied together. And the pandemic, of course, on one level, you know, has been like an x-ray. I mean, it's exposed uh, sort of realities which were not totally unknown beforehand, but they're now starkly visible in a way that they, that they weren't. So if, yes, if the left keeps mobilized and if there's enough pressure on a figure like Biden, interesting things could happen. I mean, let's remember that also in the past, didn't always matter whether the president personally was super progressive or not. So FDR was not, you know, at the beginning of his political career, a particularly progressive figure. Lyndon, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson was not exactly known as, you know, a great civil rights crusader in the 1950s. And yet both of them had significant pressure on them. And then partly because they were very experienced politicians, especially Johnson, who really, of course, knew how the Senate worked in a way that arguably hasn't been paralleled uh, since could really get things done. So if that's the combination, then yeah, I think I think you have reasons to be to be hopeful. Um, the the other observation though is this: um, as also a number of other people have, I think, rightly said, one of the things that was so so striking about Trump was that it almost seemed like a sort of cartoonish version of Reaganism, starting with the slogan, which of course had been coined by Reagan and was then sort of basically just plagiarized by 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 Trump. And the fact that so much of what Trump ended up doing was basically a kind of mindless repetition of Reaganism. So when Obama had regulated something, Trump would just simply deregulate. You know, it wasn't a sort of plan, really. It was simply if they'd done it, we'll undo it uh, in, in, in terms of some completely sort of crude understanding of economic freedom and, and so on. And I think this fits into a kind of framing of American politics where you have these sort of long periods where a certain vision dominates, but eventually it comes, it comes to an end. And sort of, sort of the last person within that long regime is almost like a caricature of the beginning. So according to that interpretation, uh, someone like Jimmy Carter was like a cartoonish version of FTR, but it was really the end of something. And I think it's plausible in many ways to say that Trump was not the beginning of something new. He didn't really have a super attractive vision. Yes, he did create a movement, that's not trivial, um, but he didn't create something where people who initially might not have liked him sort of came around to him in the way that, remember, blue Democrats in the 80s said, look, I used to be a Democrat, but now I see why this is a really attractive vision and I can sort of come on, come on. And Trump, remember, was never really able to broaden his support. So that's why it's plausible to say that he's the end of something and that we might really be in a transitional phase. But of course, the flip side of this is that you have to have something in place which can somehow act as an alternative, can, can cons construct a kind of new, if that's not too highfalutin the term, a kind of new cultural hegemony, a new political hegemony, because it's a really attractive vision. And at least I don't see that yet. I don't, I don't see how these different parts are fitting together um, in a way that people might say, yeah, you know, I used to be, I used to be a Republican and I, I can sort of somehow be on board with what's out there now. And the fact that so many people evidently at one point said, you know, I want to be done with Trump. I really don't want this president anymore. And yet at the same time, still voted for the Republican party, I think shows clearly that we're not at that point where something new is truly beginning. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see about that. I want to. I want to ask you a few questions about about Europe because uh, in March, when COVID nineteen erupted in, in in Europe, 
And we've had this long negotiation about Brexit. And I was, I was very, I was always very impressed by the way the 27 countries in Europe stood together against the UK, that they, they were never divided. They were actually never divided. And in the beginning, there was some fear that, that there would spread some contagion from the UK that other, that other countries would be tempted as well. But it, it didn't happen. And today we're not afraid of, of countries leaving the, the European Union, at least I, I'm, I'm not. And then you had this experience in March when COVID erupted and, and all the countries were just thinking of themselves closing the borders. And how did you see that situation for Europe? Well, I don't think it was the blow to the European Union that some people at the time made it out to be. I think it was much more easily understood as a drastic, but still comprehensible, comprehensible decision, because it was really not about ethnicity or kind of cultural war along the lines of, you know, we don't want certain people because God forbid, you know, they have the wrong culture or wrong religion, you know, we all know what that means. Um, it was really about, you know, where have you been? And are you coming from a place that we consider to be dangerous? Um, I think it wasn't in a sense the blow that some people made it out to be. And less obviously maybe, I think in retrospect also, it's actually been not the kind of boon for the far right and for populists more broadly that some people expected. Because I think some of them have had a very hard time from pivoting from a rhetoric in March where they said, oh, borders are closing, great. We always told you that you, you can do this and this is the right thing to do. And now finally it's happening, great. They've now often tried to pivot from that view to uh, a kind of semi-oblique endorsement of a sort of all-out libertarianism or even conspiracy theories. I mean, at least in some countries, they now are marching with people on the streets who say that, you know, this is, you know, nefarious interests who are behind all this, this isn't real, uh, you know, we want our freedoms back and so on. And obviously the two don't go together. I mean, if, if COVID is, is just an invention by, you know, take your pick of you who you think really invented it, then, you know, all the border closing stuff was also crazy and shouldn't have happened. So the, so the, the two kind of don't really add up to any sort of, any sort of coherent, coherent vision. So in that sense, I'm inclined to think, but again, I don't make predictions about the future, but I'm inclined to think that um, as actually with many phenomena, it, it might change less than we initially expected. But I thought that that Europe actually changed after this, whether it was a small crisis or or just uh, the response to a very unusual event, or whether it was a structural crisis. I think the budget that came out and the geopolitical vision of Europe and the world. I'm surprised by Ursula von der Leyen uh, that seems to actually envision some a position for Europe between America and and China and. I, I, I'm, I think I'm seeing a more ambitious Europe and uh, a European Union beyond austerity. Do, do you see that as well? Well, it's certainly true that the, this recovery package is, is an important step, both in terms, of, in terms of showing solidarity across borders and, and actually showing citizens where the money is, so to speak, and where the money is, is, is coming from. But also basically Angela Merkel finally agreeing to something which for many years had been anathema in terms of, oh my, oh my God, this is gonna get us into Euro bonds. And this is you know, gonna be something that German taxpayers will, will uh, run a mock about and, and so on. So I, I agree with, with you that it was an important step. Um, at the same time, I don't, I don't quite see a kind of global assertion of Europe either as, as a power that um, has, has truly accomplished much in terms of uh, basically taming the internet giants in a, in a really substantial way, nor, nor uh, as, a, as it used to be put uh, uh, a few years back, as a kind of normative power that, that really offers a set of political values that uh, others will in a, in a very clear way find attractive. And I, I hate to add, but I think it has something to do with the fact that in this regard, Europe doesn't have its own house in order and has now been tolerating autocratic, autocratic figures in its midst. So that really weakens that normative case of Europe on the, on the global stage. Well, I, I would say to, I think when, when you hear them talk about strategic autonomy and bringing back supply change and they're not talking about fair and level playing field anymore. You know, they used to be the free traders of the world. Now, now they're talking about European champions in the, in the commission. 
and and uh, they're talking about about di diversifying their supply chain so we're not depending on anyone they're advising countries against taking capital from china so i think they're being more ambitious and have another view of of globalization but but i want to ask you about these autocrats in in our midst because uh, part of this whole european union budget negotiation was this rule of law mechanism that you know of course it's a problem that that countries should be democracies and uh, adhere to certain basic principles to be part of the european union and once they enter the union they can compromise these these principles and we seem powerless um, and then the commission came up with this mechanism saying well you can't veto us punishing you for violating basic rule of law principles if we do it in this technocratic way. So if you don't live up to these standards, then we can take some money away from you. I think it's a, a, a difficult position, but you think it's very easy. Why is that? Well, I would say, I would say two things. Um, there is still a tendency. I mean, not, I think not in Denmark. I mean, I think Denmark and a couple of other countries have been very clear about this and have also really tried to intervene in court proceedings in, in Europe, they, they, you know, there's talk now of, for instance, the Dutch taking Poland to the European court because of rule of law violations. So I don't want to generalize the point, and I might be talking to the, to, to, to the converted, um, but I think it's, it's, it's still important to underline that, that what's happening is not some sort of, you know, uh, sideshow or some problem in some, you know, benighted faraway countries, you know, where often then the argument is slipped in that, well, you know, these Eastern Europeans might anyway be very illiberal and, you know, they only had so few years to get used to democracy and so on. Um, I think this is completely the wrong framing. I think it overlooks that, A, the practical functioning of the union is endangered. I mean, national courts are always also European courts. And the whole show only works because national courts can trust each other. And for instance, if there's a European arrest warrant, there's a sense that yes, if a court in the other country has decided it, you know, we, we trust that person to get, a, to get a fair trial. That's already breaking down now. And this kind of mutual trust and mutual recognition is really what makes the whole show go on. And if that's going, never mind highfalutin talks about values and so on, we have a massive problem. But values matter too. And at least since the 1970s, you know, the very loud uh, promise of the EU, speaking of the EU as a normative power, has been join this club of liberal democracies. And once you've done that, there's no pathway back to dictatorship, authoritarianism, kleptocracies, and, and so on. Wasn't always the promise. I mean, in the 50s, I mean, really, European community was much more about peace and prosperity. It was the Council of Europe, which kind of did human rights and, and democracy. But ever since the transition to democracy of Greece, Spain, and Portugal, and then, of course, especially in the 90s, um, it was very clear that this is sort of what we promised these citizens. And we have let them down. And we have basically been destroying the kind of moral core of the whole enterprise by not living up to this to this expectation. So this is a, this is a very general uh, point. The more specific point, and I think the more problematic point now, is that is that um, as as again some of my colleagues have put it very nicely, by now we've seen sort of the emergence of what what one observer has called a a cycle of instrument creation. So every few years, you know, the commission or somebody else will announce a new instrument. And as you, as you <laughs> rightly say, you know, the very language gives away the game, but this is highly technocratic. So it's a new mechanism. It's a new instrument. But of course, no mechanism triggers itself and no instrument applies itself. There always has to be somebody who actually uses these things. So it always is going to come down to a question of political will. And the will simply hasn't been there for a long time. And as we've seen at the most recent summit, I think it's very clear that the will still isn't there because what has happened in my view, and maybe you disagree, but I think what has happened de facto is that the commission kind of subordinated itself now to the member states, reduced itself to a kind of secretariat where now the member states can basically give guidelines of how this mechanism is gonna work and how it's gonna be applied and sort of what the political side constraints are on what you can do. And I think a different commission, you know, with, with uh, I don't want to idealize the past, but if you think back to figures like, like Jacques Delors and others, they would have said, what's a nice way of putting it, they would have said, screw you. Um, <laughs> you know, we are the commission. We are the guardian of the treaties. We are not your secretariat. You are just the member states. You are just the council. 
but you know, we're going to do with this, you know, what we need, we think we need to do in terms of in terms of protecting uh, the core of this, the core of this operation. So, in that sense, I'm I'm fairly pessimistic about about what we'll see in the next couple of years. You know, there'll be a long again a lot of back and forth. Orban and Morawiecki and Kaczynski behind it all, they will try to draw drag this out, and you know, and they've already made it clear that. You know they will they will always go all the way. I think this was also important for them to basically demonstrate their determination that they they don't mind holding millions and millions of people hostage in terms of budget and the recovery fund if they feel their core interests, including the core interests of their extended kleptocratic political families, are threatened. So I know that some people have said, "Oh, this again showed Merkel to be this this you know fantastic." fantastic politician who can at the last minute save the day, you know, find a compromise and so on. Um, I beg to differ very respectfully. I, I'm not sure this is a great success story. I agree with you that it's definitely not a success story. I agree with you that they caved in the end and they sacrificed the principle of rule of law in order to get the budget deal, the recovery deal and the, the green plan. Definitely, that was a piece of politics. And, and so they sacrificed that in the end. but. Where I personally, I, I think the, the job of the European Union should be to secure those working for democracy in Hungary and Poland, the best conditions for doing that. And we should know that we depend on them to fight for rule of law and democracy in their own countries. And we should make sure that they have free press, they have freedom to gather, that they have the institutions in place to have free elections. My concern is if the European Commission goes too far, so we eventually damage the legitimacy of the people that we need to help in the long run. That's why I think it's, it's, it's a problem. The good, the good thing about this, this, our conversation is that on some points we really fundamentally disagree, which is a very good thing. So otherwise, you know, people will always say, oh, typical, you know, the same lefty liberal elites always saying the same thing and, and so on. So I, I hear the worry about, you know, the backlash. Uh, we're going to create even more, you know, Eurosceptic countries, and God forbid, one day there'll be who exit or Paul exit, etc. The thing, though, is that first of all, to the extent that we have any survey data about this, it, it's not it's not clear that you know what Orban at one point called, you know, the war for independence, you know, equating Brussels with the Soviet Union, the Ottoman Empire, and so on is genuinely popular. Quite on the contrary, the EU is enormously popular in Hungary and, and Poland. Um, so it's not like these countries are ready to secede if Brussels you know, makes, one, makes, one, makes one wrong move. Secondly, as we've seen in the last couple of years, these leaders are, to put it very bluntly, they're inciting hatred of Brussels anyway. Remember Orban's yeah. campaign against Juncker with these you know, stop Brussels um, posters um, everywhere. This was at a time when Brussels wasn't really doing anything. Uh, Juncker was still very convivial and, you know, was sort of still in the mode of we're all going to find a compromise and so on. These leaders have every incentive to whip up passions against Brussels, irrespective of what the commission does or doesn't do. And this is not a hypothesis. We've seen this. We've seen this in practice. The case has been proven that they're going to do this anyway. So if that's true, why not actually live up to your principles as opposed to thinking that, oh, you know, who knows what they're going to do and let's be afraid of, you know, the next campaign they will, they will launch. And then last point is, is a bit of a repetition of what I was trying to hint at earlier. Doing nothing is not neutral. Doing nothing is basically saying to millions of people who in 2004 believed that basically Western Europe was serious about its normative commitments. It's basically saying to these people, sorry guys, we didn't mean it, okay? We told you that this really meant something and uh, now you were safe in this club and, and so on. So it's not neutral. It basically, it basically uh, sends a message to people and that message will be heard also in other European countries. Um, because as we've also seen, you know, the initial story, oh, Hungary is one bad apple, but this is never going to have happen anywhere else, also turned out not to be, not to be true. Last thing, if I may. So, of course, I agree with you that, that, um, that, that one should not sort of fall into the trap of a kind of EU paternalism, you know, sort of things are going wrong. And then the kind of technocratic repair crew comes from Brussels and fixes everything for you. 
and and you know and 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 reinforces basically a sort of fairly anti-democratic intuition, namely that you know rule of law is a technocratic thing, democracy is a kind of mechanism, and if you have the right repair crew, then you know we'll we'll do it we'll do it for you. No, people have to fight their own fight clearly. But if you think about all the things which we are actually talking about, so the famous Article Seven uh, in the in the Lisbon Treaty, or even now this rule of law mechanism. Um, these are not really about intervening in the country, especially Article 7, uh, to use a term that, alas, has become, you know, so, so much used this year. It's really a kind of quarantine. It basically says, we're suspending your membership rights. You can no longer determine what happens in the rest of Europe because we don't want to, want to be governed by an, anti, by an undemocratic government uh, in a member state. But it doesn't actually do anything in the country itself. In theory, it could go on forever. So, you know, Orban, if it were ever to happen, Orban could say, oh, that's too bad that, you know, we, we no longer sit in Brussels and, and make these decisions, but it's okay. You know, it doesn't actually change anything necessarily. And yes, if, if this, the mechanism uh, really were to be applied, obviously it is an intervention in the sense of cutting, potentially cutting funds. Um, and that's more serious. But if, if the hypothesis is true, that a lot of these funds go to cronies of the regime anyway, then it's also a legitimate argument to say, look, you know, why should one basically subsidize uh, these autocrats? Why should one subsidize, to put it bluntly, the enemies of the European project um, and let them buy support in the, in the same way that, uh, broadly speaking, Arab dictatorships by by support because they get a free resource either in the form of oil or in the form of European funds. I would love to ask you so many questions about that, but because this is such an interesting point, let's end by disagreeing. So this talk is pluralistic as we hoped it to be. Thank you so very much for taking your time and talking to us, and I hope you'll allow us to get back to you in the future. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. It's good to see you again. And I hope that next time we'll see each other under different circumstances. Det var så alt for vores langsomme samtaler om verdenssituationen med Jan Werner Müller. Jeg kan love jer, at vi vender tilbage med et utroligt stærkt lineup. Jeg kan allerede nu løftsløret for, at vi kommer til at tale med forfatteren til The Socialist Manifesto og redaktøren på Jacobin Mac, Bashkar Sunkara. Vi kommer til at tale med økonomen Branko Milanovic, som lavede den definitive analyse af ulighedsfordelingen under globaliseringen, der er kendt som elefantmodellen. Vi kommer til at tale med en højorienteret amerikansk kommentator, som jeg kender, fordi han for 15 år siden ved et tilfælde kom til julefrokost hjemme hos mig. Og det var vel at mærke, dengang jeg stadigvæk drak, og den fik fuld hammer. Og jeg har ikke talt med ham siden. Det er Christopher Caldwell som i dag er klomist blandt andet hos Financial Times og forfatter til adskillige bøger om muslimer og Europa og den konservative verden. Vi har endnu flere aftaler på vej, men jeg vil ikke afsløre mere her. Jeg vil bare sige tak for nu.